Westmount, I invite you again to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Continue our study in this book. If you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll see right in front of you a rack with a Bible. Please help yourself to that. Follow with us. Second book, Exodus 25th chapter. Exodus 25. Last week, we began this final portion of Exodus, these last 16 chapters, with an introduction to the theme within them, which, of course, is the presence of God, the presence of God, the presence of God specifically with man, which, as we are seeing, is to, biblically speaking, to tabernacle. Again, that is what tabernacle means, to settle with to abide with, to dwell with. Westman, here in the final chapters of Exodus, we observe both the command to build and the construction of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with man. That is the tabernacle and all its necessary pieces. And that we begin today. The rest of chapter 25 outlines the instructions for three of the most inner Pieces, sacred pieces, that's what we're going to look at today. Chapter 26 outlines instructions for the actual tabernacle structure, the tent itself. Then later in chapter 27, and then again in chapter 30, we'll see instructions for additional pieces. Additional pieces. That's where we're headed, but as we mentioned last week, We're looking now here in these next few chapters at the given instructions. These are the instructions given. At the very end of the book then, we'll see the actual tabernacle constructed, 35 to 40. That's what's ahead. And church, let's not miss the magnitude of this. We don't want to miss this. And we say it so often in a book like Exodus where there's the presentation of a holy God, God Almighty. We don't want to miss the magnitude of this. This is indeed God Almighty declaring to his newly redeemed people this. I am coming. That's what he's saying. I am God and I am coming. I am coming even more to be with, to settle with, to abide with, to dwell with you. We say so often, beloved, think about this with Almighty God, but think about the reality of presence for a moment as we step aside. Presence is always comforting. Is that not right? Presence is comforting. I just want us, beloved Westmount, to think of the past month in our lives. I want you to just consider with me, can you imagine going through what we've been through without presence? Can you just imagine that for a moment? Strip presence out and do that. No, presence is comforting. More, listen, more, presence is not just comforting, but it is necessary. It's very necessary in an obvious sense. Cars are not fixed with phone calls. Surgeries are not done by FaceTime. And as the married will tell you, blowing kisses with an emoji is not the same as being there. Yes, beloved, we need presence. We need it. And if we need such earthly presence, how much more, listen, how much more the divine presence? 
especially to fulfill what God calls us to. And thankfully, mercifully, God provides that. He provides himself. You grab that? He provides himself to us. That's where we left off last week, the reality of God's dwelling with his own and his necessary presence to a people called to be his people and live under him. Now, don't miss that encouragement. God does not call Israel to law and then just leave it there. Exodus doesn't end at chapter 24, thankfully. God doesn't redeem and give law. God doesn't say farewell and snicker at a ragtag and incapable group at Sinai. That's not God. Yes, they may be sincere in their we will be obedient, chapter 24, verse 7. But God knows, and Christian, you do too, that we cannot do it without him. We can't. Thus, God gives himself. God provides his presence to Israel. That's what we'll see this morning as we now dive deep into the tabernacle. As mentioned, we will see three pieces. That's our examination this morning. Three pieces that illustrate the necessity and reality of God's presence. Three pieces that illustrate the necessity and the reality of God's presence. Now let us first read the text introductions for each. That's all we're going to read by way of introduction. We're going to get into that as we go through them. But let's just introduce each piece. We're going to, again, give a fuller treatment in a moment. Look down at verse 10. They shall make an ark. Scan to verse 23. You shall make a table. And finally go to verse 31. You shall make a lampstand. An ark, a table, and a lampstand. Father in heaven, Lord, we have these pieces, this text, this word from you. God, give us eyes to see it. Let us understand it. Let us receive it. And let us live it to your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Three pieces, ark, table, lamb, stand, that again illustrate the need and reality of God's presence with his people. Think of the ark, which will be, as we'll see, a place of mercy. You think of the table, which will be a place of nourishment, and the lampstand, a place of illumination. With that, let's now turn first and consider this a place of mercy. A place of mercy. Look at verse 10 with me. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Look down there. The first piece that God commands to construct is a piece called an ark. A piece called an ark. Familiar with it, I'm sure, in some variety. The word ark here 
It's actually not the same as Noah's Ark or the basket that Moses was in. That too was called an ark. It's not like those. It's a very different word. In fact, the English word ark refers to a chest or a box, and that's where that's helpful when you think of the ark in view here, a chest or a box. It fits very well. So God commands Israel to build a chest, to build a box. Why? Well, before we tackle that important question, we need to consider the ark instructions as they're given in the text. The first couple observations serve as a nice review for us. Look again at verse 1. Make an ark of acacia wood. Then verse 2, overlay it with pure gold and note it inside and out. Remember, special wood, valuable gold, materials, remember, within Israel's reach. We looked at that last week. Acacia wood was all around the Sinai Peninsula, and gold was taken with them from Egypt. Again, God does not ask for something that he has not first given to you. Remember that. He doesn't ask you for something not within your reach. Secondly, look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And then look at verse 12. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. God, God says, is this, is this what we're seeing here? Just make it nice. Any box will do. In fact, just create a box of your own understanding. That's what you create. No, he doesn't say that, and we always need to stress this in God's word. No, we remarked on this a lot last week, and we always do. God is specific. His instructions are crystal clear. In fact, look at the measurements in those verses. They're about as precise as it gets, right? One that any carpenter would love. Today, as mentioned, we stand on clarity We stand in unity with many sister churches that stand on the clarity of God's word. And we need to say this on a morning like this. God is not a God of confusion, is he? His word can't be clear. And you know what's astonishing on a morning like this? Of all topics, he gives one of the most visual affirmations of his design in male and female. And yet we say it's just all very confusing. It's not. God's word, beloved, hear the word. And not just in this text, in all of them. God's word is clear. God made them male. God made them female. God's word is clear. There is no confusion. God's word is clear. That is clarity. And this is clarity. Yes, when you think about biblical clarity, that the world doesn't see. The world rebels against. But clarity, listen, church, often that we miss. For example, look at verse 12. You should cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other. You should make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You should put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. This is a very interesting piece of scripture here. Poles. You might ask, why the rings? Why the poles? Why? Just We need to just carry it, Lord. Yahweh, can't we just carry it and carry it carefully? Well, one clue, look back at verse 11. 
is that this ark is overlaid not just with gold, but what's the adjective there? What kind of gold? Pure gold. And we don't miss the details. Every word inspired. Pure gold. That is taking the gold already given and doing what to it? Refining it. Refining it. Making it true, pure gold. Refined, unblemished gold is the very least beloved required for God's presence. That's what we see here. As such, this will not just be any chest or even a really nice royal chest. This chest, this ark, will be a specific place where God's presence will reside. Think about that. The presence of God will reside there. So no... No, my people, God says, touching, handling this ark as you do common things, right? That's what we do with common things. We touch and handle them. No, 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 not with the dwelling place of God. You will not touch it. It's not okay. You need rings. You need poles. This is why, by the way, Uzzah, if you wondered this as you read 2 Samuel 6, why did he lose his life? Well, what did Uzzah do? He touched the ark. And the prescriptions were crystal clear. Uzzah, like every good Israelite, understood Numbers 4 that said, here are the specific instructions for how you are to transport and handle the dwelling place of God with man. Because this tabernacle in pieces, remember the wilderness wanderings heading toward Canaan, will be in transit often. No, it's not to be touched. Thus, God says, I give rings and I give poles. By the way, this is the one instrument where that pole just stays in the rings. You're not even handling it to put the pole in and out. You put it in once and you leave it because it's holy. Holy transport for a holy God in his tabernacle, including the ark and all in it. Look at verse 16. The ark contained the very testimony, the law, the words of Yahweh. That is why the rings and poles, God's presence is holy. It cannot be handled. It cannot be touched. Certainly not by common hands. Now, the ark holds the testimony from God, but more, the meeting place of God. Look at verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherub on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, toward the mercy seat, shall be the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The cover, look at it there, or the lid of the ark is referred to here as what? The mercy seat. 
This is not literally a seat, as you would picture one, but the term refers specifically to the center of something. Like we would say the seat of government, right? It, it refers to the center of something. More precisely, this word here means to cover in the sense of mercy. That's what's going on here. To cover, we would say, to appease, to atone. In fact, the word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament done in Hebrew, the Septuagint here uses the same Greek word used for this word in the New Testament, propitiation. Propitiation, which is a word that simply means to appease. In the New Testament, we understand what needs appeasement, and it is God's wrath, appeasing God from his wrath, God's wrath warranted by our sinfulness. Man is in a whole lot of trouble if we do not have a mechanism or a person to appease God's wrath. Does that make sense? That's a New Testament teaching, and here we see it right at the mercy seat in the ark, and We know, Christian, to truly and ultimately experience God's presence, right? We need something, we need someone to take care of that wrath, and we certainly don't want it to be us. There is only one way. The way is through the propitiation, the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. His blood, His atonement, He is our mercy seat. That is our propitiation, Jesus Christ, his blood, is what appeases God so that we can be in his presence forever. In fact, consider with me this important text from Romans. Turn to Romans 3. Keep your finger in Exodus 25 and turn to Romans 3. So important here. Let's just read this text as Paul expounds on the great gospel and more so in the opening chapters of Romans, gospel truths. Gospel truths like this, what Christ has done. This is so good. Let's pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 3. By the way, after verse upon verse of telling, look at verse 10, for example, none is righteous, no, not one. No man, no woman, there is nothing you can do to make yourself right before God. No man, no woman, there's nothing you can do to justify yourself before God. No. Prophet Isaiah reminds too, and this would be the backdrop of this, even our best efforts at pulling up our own bootstraps are filthy rags before God. We can't make ourselves right before him. It should be bad news if it was just that. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, which we're seeing in Exodus. The righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, and here it is again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, and look at this, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So much there. Look again at the end of verse 25, though. We'll zone in on this. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
In other words, there was nothing in the past that was atoning for sins. And in his divine forbearance, he looked over it. And what are we saying? Yes, all the sacrifices that would take place in this tabernacle we're studying, all of that ceremony, all of that ritual, all the prescription, they did not take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin. The author of Hebrews makes that very clear. They don't. They don't truly atone. Listen, as we learn in the full corpus of Scripture, only Jesus Christ can fulfill the standard and pay the penalty for sin. And that is, by the way, for saints of all time. Not just you and me that have repented and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For the Israelite building the tabernacle, only saved because of Messiah and looking forward to what Messiah would do. That is saints for approaching God for all time. And that is true for us, church. Cannot approach God and be in his presence without atonement. True for us, church. True for Israel. Atonement for sin, presence with God, only possible through Messiah alone. Yes, also in his divine forbearance, Yahweh made a way for Israel to meet him. Yahweh made a way for his people to be in his presence. Do you see that? He made a way. The bad news would be a holy God, sinful man, and that's it. And of course, many false ways have you hanging on some wrong thread of hope in that. Not the true God. Not the true God who made a way for sinful man to be in the presence of a holy God. This is, again, so much here we can unpack, but we... Remind ourselves that long before Messiah would be made manifest, there was a place of meeting. This is spanning all time. And it was here, back in Exodus now, at the mercy seat. If you have an NIV, it's called the atonement cover. We would say in the original, the propitiation. At the root, the same word, and hence the idea here, this cover, this seat, is God's mercy manifest. And it must be because... Man cannot meet God any other way. He cannot. By the way, on the Day of Atonement, if you're familiar with Israelite law, you know there was a Day of Atonement once a year. Leviticus 16 prescribes that the blood would be sprinkled right here seven times on the mercy seat. That's it. And as a prefiguring again of the blood that would be required in the mercy seat, the blood of the Lamb. Remember, everything in shadow, and we'll say more of that later. That is how this is possible, because of the mercy seat. And look at verse 22, pulls it together again, Exodus 25. There I will meet you, this is the mercy seat, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The mercy seat will be for Israel, the meeting place of God and his people. Now, before we move on too quickly, we need to circle back to one other detail we see here. Look at verse 18. You shall make two cherubim of gold. And then you see there the details of the cherubim. The mercy seat holds two cherubim who are divine creatures. They're mentioned over 90 times in the Old Testament. And let's be Uh, Helpful here this morning, cherubim are not the chubby kids in Raphael paintings. That's not what the cherubim are. 
Any reading of Ezekiel 1 and 10 will put that to rest right away. They're not that. These are serious, intentional creatures specifically employed with purpose by God. In Solomon's temple, there were two 15-foot-high cherubim, also, by the way, of gold. Notably, 1 Kings 6.27 tells us the cherubim were stationed in the innermost part. Note that, the innermost part. That's significant as they had a place closest to God's presence. You see that? Closest to God's presence. Same here. The mercy seat, the ark cover, has two gold cherubim facing each other. Their wings are outstretched over the lid, and really they form like a frame of the mercy seat. As such, they hedge, or we could say, as we really drill down, they guard the presence of God here. And that should not surprise us when you think about cherubim guarding a place. We see cherubim doing this as early as creation. In Genesis 3.24, God places who? Cherubim to guard the first tabernacle, the garden. And no cherubim needed with sinful man threatening to enter God's presence. And note, too, the benevolence of our God to say, lest something happen to my creations, because they're in a state of fallenness now. They need something, so until that provision is manifest, cherubim will guard the presence. So, so much there. But note the connection. So the cherubim frame and guard a place of mercy, and again, mercy needed. If God was going to meet with sinful man, and God did meet them there. So let's put this all together and consider number 789. Again, we're still in the law. It describes it well. Listen to this. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above where? The mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim. That's your picture. Meeting place of God. That is a place for Israel where God met with man, a place of mercy above the Ark of the Testimony between the two cherubim right at the mercy seat. That is but one first piece. But now we consider the second, a place of mercy, but also a place of nourishment. A place of nourishment. We can think of the tabernacle construction in concentric rings. In the center is the most holy place. That's where the ark resided. You think of all the diagrams you've seen of the temple, and they show you this. Right in the middle is the most holy place, the holy of holies. Moving out from that was the holy place. That would be the next ring out, the next compartment outward. If the ark resided in the most holy place, now we're going to read about two items in the holy place, the next section out. First, look at verse 23, the table. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the ring shall lie. As holders for the poles to carry the table, you shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls, with which to pour drink offerings." You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The materials and instructions for this table are familiar. 
We've seen similar prescription with the ark, have we not? Very, very similar. Same kind of wood, note it. Same pure gold. And look at the measurements, same precise measurements. You will see this pattern with most of the tabernacle pieces. They may all have different purposes, but they're under the same tent. They're all pieces of the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, and hence they're fit for him. Here, the table, though, what is the purpose of a table in the tabernacle? That's the question in this section. The table was where the various tabernacle utensils sat. Look at verse 29. The plates were likely for the bread, which we're going to come back to in a moment. The dishes were for the incense. In chapter 30, we'll see the construction or the instructions for the altar of incense. The the dishes, or sorry, the flagons and the bowls, flagons is another word for uh, jugs, which were used for pouring the drink offerings. By the way, the drink offering was one of the final offerings before they went into Canaan. God prescribed for them to do this. You go into the land and you do this drink offering. And these utensils then all sat there, but they were not the focal point of the table. They sat there, the table, but they weren't the focal point of the table. The focus was, look at verse 30, the bread of the presence or the showbread, if you will. This is what featured prominently on the table. Literally, it, as you see it, bread, the bread of the presence or the bread of God's presence for a description of that. We turn to Leviticus 24, and this is helpful for us. What is this bread of the presence? Look at Leviticus 24. I'm just going to read you verses 5 to 9. Again, in another portion of the law, more prescription here. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So this is bread that is, as we just read, a holy portion, meaning this is bread baked specifically, but set aside for holy use. Do you see that? It's specifically holy bread. But what is its use? Don't miss this here. For consumption by the priests. It's a bread in God's presence that sits in God's presence, but it's to be consumed by the priests every Sabbath. Priests at this point, Aaron and his sons. This bread was literal bread here, and again, consumed by the priests, but note this, as a memorial portion. Note that language of Yahweh. Even more, it was like covenant maintenance in the tabernacle. Regular partaking of bread as a symbol of the ongoing communion between God and his people. It was given regularly in God's presence and consumed regularly by the people who, by the way, when we see that, the people would have been represented by the priests. That's what they were doing. They were standing on behalf of the people, so they were consuming the bread on behalf of all Israel. This is also important. 
Because this table, this bread, this ongoing partaking represented covenant communion. And I ask you, does that not sound familiar? It does. That was the old manner of communion. But it's not unlike at all how we partake in the new covenant, is it? And that communion, which we did earlier. We too partake of the bread every week in God's presence as we gather here. But the bread in the new covenant we consume together represents God's presence, yes, but much more. Jesus said it this way in Luke twenty two nineteen, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. We know, Christian, how the body that bread represents was given for us. That sacrifice we remember at the Lord's table is Christ's body broken at the cross. But Westmount, listen, there is even more continuity here, beloved. Consider for a moment the provision of bread, eaten weekly in the presence of God. That ongoing consummation or consuming of the bread. We're reminded of Christ's announcement in John 6.35. You know this. Jesus said to them what? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, the bread there in context of John 6 is for eternal life. And that's an important reminder. Eternal life is attained no other way. All other bread, all other means of nourishment for life beyond the grave, leaves one hungry. But let's not miss the principle. That's salvation. But let's not miss another principle here for us, church. Jesus, as he said, I am the bread of life. Jesus, the bread of daily life. And beloved, let's not miss this. Unless you feed on him and his word regularly, weekly, no market daily. Unless you do that, you too will not only be left hungry, but you'll be left what? Malnourished. And we know what happens in malnourishment. I'm not sure where you are in your Bible reading plan for 2022. Generally, though, sadly, this is the time of the year where it drops off. A day is missed, and then two, a restart is attempted, and then it eventually just drops away. February comes, and it's no longer. I say that in the wake of the reality for many of us, right, with Bible readings, to consider the consequences of neglecting your daily bread. I compel you and urge you to consider that, that you neglect being fed every day. And listen to me, I don't mean pocket devotionals or Christian TV or televangelism. Please don't. No, nothing substitutes, not Christian radio, not Christian blog. Listen to me, nothing substitutes for this. There is no substitute. This is what you must be consuming every day. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, the word made flesh. And you have it in your lap. Are you feeding on it every day? None of those substitutes feeds your soul like the ever-living bread of life, Christ and his word. Like Israel had the bread of the presence consumed regularly, Christian, you too have his presence in word. It's in your hands right now. 
the bread of life, the word of God, there's no better place of nourishment. In fact, I would say it this way, that is the only place of nourishment, the word of God. One last inner peace. We've looked at a place of mercy, a place of nourishment, finally a place of illumination. Let us read of the lampstand, also in the holy place, back to Exodus 25, facing the table. This is the lampstand, now still in that second ring, the holy place, now it's facing the table. Look down at verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. The word, look at the word lampstand there, back in verse 31. The word lampstand there is menorah. That's the word in the Hebrew. You know that as the very classic traditional Jewish symbol. The menorah that we'll see described here, not exactly, though, like the ones today. This is a little different in description. Let's look. For one, this menorah, this lampstand, was ornate. You can't miss that, even with a quick reading here. This is the most intricate piece in the tabernacle, the lampstand. Very ornate. Tremendous detail we see here. You notice in these verses, intricate details are given for almond blossoms. Right, Like stems, almond trees, by the way, in the ancient Near East, were the first bulbs to bloom, a brilliant white in the springtime. Thus, for the ancient Near Easterner, it marked hope. The almond blossom and the the bloom, the early bloom said spring is coming, renewal is coming, hope is coming. Here that traditional bloom of hope was reflected on this light of hope. The lampstand, look at it, had seven stems, so one main stack, one pole, and then three arms out on each side, each like branches, from base to stem to calyx, which is like the headpiece, that's what that word means. Now, as intricate and detailed as the lampstand was, mark this, it had this one simplicity about it. There was one thing very simple about this lampstand. This lampstand had one ingredient Gold. That's it. Do you see that? Gold. Even the tongs and the trays were to be made of gold. Gold was all that was needed for this majestic piece, this menorah, this lampstand. Now, we should note this lampstand is not like a candelabra holding candles. See them on grand pianos or what have you. This instead is a lampstand holding ancient lamps that used olive oil and wicks. Very important. 
That is why, and look in verse 37, God instructs Israel to make seven lamps for it. They're not just candles. These are lamps that would sit on the menorah. And we note this for a couple of reasons. Number one, simple candles, even as you're thinking of them right now, simple candles would not give much light, right? You need a lamp, not a candle. Secondly, oil and wick would have burned for a much longer time, much longer lasting. And both of these points were important with regard to the lampstand. For one, the lampstand was the source of light inside the tent, Just imagine it for a moment, and we'll get to the tabernacle construction, the tent construction next week, but it would have been dark within the tent, and you needed a light source, a good light source, a worthy light source. Also, the lampstand was to hold light that burned constantly. Just flip for a moment to chapter 27. Look at verse 20. Just note these instructions. This is now oil for the lamp, which we'll get to. Verse 20, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. By the way, what you see there in chapter 27 is repeated and reinforced in Leviticus 24, which we looked at already. This is regular lamp maintenance. So important. This would have been daily, weekly duties in the tabernacle. The bread laid out every week, the the lampstand being tended to, making sure it's burning each day. This light was to be regular and constant. And again, this is a critical detail of this piece. It gave illuminations in a, illumination, sorry, in a very practical sense to the priests. So they could see what they were doing. It had that function, but it also did more. In a symbolic sense, it demonstrated that there was a light of the presence that never went out. You see that? There's a light of the presence that never went out. It shone regularly. It illuminated constantly. Yahweh always regularly, constantly present, illuminating his people. That was the place of illumination for Israel. And again, church, we see how this tabernacle points forward to the true light. I think you see it. The true light which gives light to everyone who came into the world, John 1. That true light made clear the only means of illumination was through him. John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the light after the shadow. And so here we must add that these tabernacle pieces pointed to this reality. That God's people not only need to be fed by God, but they need to be led by God. God's people are not just fed, they are led by Him. They're led by Him. And of course, beloved, of course, this text provokes another question of us this morning that we must, must look at if we want to follow him each day. Are you led by him? Is he your light? Friend, are you still walking in darkness? Maybe there is one of you in this room right now walking in darkness. Your security beyond death that may happen soon is not secure. Maybe there's one of you right now is walking in darkness. 
If so, as Gary offered the table and we offer in this text again, take heed. Take heed of the light while you still can. But Christian, what of you? This is not just light for the nations on a day like today when I hope governments wake up and see the light. Christian, what of you? You were saved by the light. But are you allowing that same light to light your path every day? Do you wake up every morning and seek this light? Do you? What light, Christian, guides your choices and your paths and your discernment every day? What light is that that guides you? What is that divine flashlight that you use to take you from A to B, from Sunday to Monday, from 21 to 22? What light is that? What is, Christian, your place of illumination? Who or what is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? Beloved, let us understand that this is not, that God's presence manifest in these pieces is not an ancient Israelite thing. Don't read the Old Testament. Don't read Exodus and think, oh, they had to make some really nice pieces for a tent. The point of this divinely inspired text is to point you from shadow to fulfillment. And to say to you in each day that you feed on the word of God, how are you being fed and what is your light? What is your place of mercy, your place of nourishment, your place of illumination? Again, a pointer, a prefigure here in Exodus to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ who was to come for them and who has come for us. As we heard earlier this morning from Hebrews 8, verse 5, about these tabernacle pieces, said this, remember, these serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Yes, for Israel, these tabernacle pieces were forerunners, very important ones. In verse 40, the final verse of our chapter, the importance of precision in building them is clear. Look at it, the pattern. Do it according to the pattern. But listen, these pieces were never an end to themselves. Dare we fall into that same trap? This was never the end of themselves. The ceiling was never earth. That's why these pieces did and could be, and any other crafted again could be destroyed. Moses' tabernacle would be destroyed. There was, of course, conquest. And movement into the land. Solomon's temple, the grandeur of Solomon's temple was destroyed, A.D. 586. The second temple, didn't matter how much Herod tried to pump into that temple to make it big and grand, to make it indestructible. A.D. 70 took care of that. Earthly things get destroyed. But the fullness could not be. The shadow can perish, but the fullness never. Hebrews 8 continues, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since why? And note this, it's enacted on better promises. And remember, promises with Yahweh are what? Permanent. They will never fail. 
Yes, enacted on better promises, permanent promises, because it's enacted on a better, perfect person. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He, the Christ, is our light and our bread. And he is our propitiation before God. Praise God. He is our seat. He is indeed the center of mercy. Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for our mercy seat. Your son, Jesus Christ, our coming king. Lord, we thank you for what we've learned in this text today, Lord. What you gave in shadow to Israel. The bread, the light, and of course mercy finds ultimate fulfillment in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we are in him. God, may we not only feed on him, not only have our way lit by him, but may we continue each day to live in his great mercy, ever flowing to us. Oh, God, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.